Good day. You are listening to the 96th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks so much for being with us. It is Monday, the 21st of February, 2022. On this edition of the program, I'm going to be featuring the last uh, in a series of interviews that I've been doing surrounding organizing for justice in Amazon workplaces, looking at the efforts that have been undertaken by uh, many community organizations and labor unions uh, to basically challenge unjust working conditions uh, within uh, Amazon Corporation. Uh, we spoke with uh, groups like Athena Coalition um, and also specifically looked at the realities in Queens. Uh, this is where Amazon was trying to launch a major development, H2Q, which community groups came together and opposed. One of the major critiques of this major development that Amazon was proposing in Queens, which was blocked uh, due to activism, was the fact that it would uh, basically ignite a massive wave of gentrification uh, within Queens Borough of New York City. Um, of course, Queens is home to Queensbridge uh, public housing units. Uh, that is the largest public housing uh, location in North America. It was launched in 1939. And uh, many different communities uh, are linked to Queensbridge, uh, including Asian communities. So today I wanted to highlight a community group that was um, opposed to the Amazon H2Q bid in Queens uh, from the basis of opposing it um, as a result of the gentrification that it would uh, push on Queensborough. I spoke with Sasha Wajirathna of uh, CAV Organizing Asian Communities. Uh, this is an important grassroots community group in the New York City area that operates not just in Queens but across the city. Um, that has particularly focused on organizing Asian tenants. Um, they work extensively within the Queensbridge public housing complex, but also in other districts of New York. Uh, Sasha speaks about the reasons why um, CAV organizing Asian communities uh, opposed Amazon H2Q and the realities and threats that Amazon developments uh, pose in regards to gentrification. Um, if we just want to remember quickly, there are Amazon warehouses, but there's also operations centers. And Amazon was pushing this major center that was basically going to be um, a place of employment for um, uh, people within Amazon uh, at an upper administration level. This would have pushed um, housing um, prices and also rent prices way up in Queens because the median salary of so many of the Amazon employees is just way beyond uh, what is currently the average in you know, public housing units like Queensbridge, but also more generally within Queensborough until today. So Sasha speaks about all these issues, and uh, here's our conversation on Free City Radio. My name is Sasha Wajirathna, and I'm the director at CAV Organizing Asian Communities. Uh, we were started in 1986 and have gone through many different organizational iterations. We have a base in Chinatown. Um, and a base in Queens. And we organize working class Asian immigrant people, uh, mostly around housing. So mostly as tenants and around housing. And in Western Queens at the time we organized in public housing. So we organized Chinese, Korean and Bangladeshi immigrants 
in public housing, primarily in the Queensbridge houses, which is the largest public housing complex in all of the US. Uh, and it was directly next door to Animal Basin to the site where Amazon proposed and selected building their second headquarters. That's so um, critical to underline just the role of social housing in, in New York and in Queens specifically. Can you just underline the importance of that location, that public housing, social housing location, um, and, and, and why it's important just in terms of survival and dignity of South Asian and Asian communities more generally? Yeah, so public housing has been under attack and under threat in New York City for a long time along with across the country, along with, I'm sure, in many parts of the world. Um, and the Queensbridge Houses, like I said, is the biggest public housing complex in all of the U.S. It was an interesting place to be positioned in this fight. Well, before getting into that, public housing is, the basis of public housing is that what you pay in rent is based on your income and is capped. Your rent is actually capped, right? In any market rate housing, it doesn't matter how much you make, you pay whatever the market rate is. And even in rent stabilized apartments, which is another form of regulated housing in New York, even in rent stabilized apartments, landlords have often found ways to either legally or more likely illegally raise the rent so that it's nowhere near 30% of people's income. And so public housing is really like a yeah, one of the last few places where there is actually somewhat affordable housing left, especially in a place for New York City, where land and housing are like some of the highest value commodities of anything that can be bought or sold in the city. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting to also think that all those like neoliberal right wing mayors that were in, I mean, going back to Giuliani and Bloomberg, they weren't able, I mean, I know that they made some motions in the direction of trying to dismantle public housing, but the, I know also in the, in the Lower East Side, public housing is pretty significant, especially for the Puerto Rican community. They weren't able to, 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 to take it out, which is like, people often think of these political figures as having like ultimate force, but the communities um, resisted that. Um, just, just for a bit of context, I think it could be interesting for people to think about that as, as a victory, like that these public housing units still remain. Yeah, and there are continued attempts to privatize public housing. So right now, the two iterations of that are the Blueprint and the NYCHA Trust uh, and, and the RAD program. So one is an attempt to bring public housing into the hands of private developers and turn it over to private developers to actually redo and rebuild public housing uh, with the supposed promise that it that units will not then increase in price. But what's happened in reality is that that has led to a wave of evictions, whether legal or not. And the other is, is trying to bring public housing into like the speculative market and use bonds and other kinds of like government loans to, to then create like a profit scheme for public housing to make money. Basically what's at the root of both of these is not funding public housing with government, federal or state funding, which is how it's designed to be funded, but rather trying to use the private market to create the funding for public housing which as we've seen with non-public housing is how you get speculation and rampant displacement and rampant gentrification. Yeah, exactly. And just to think about 
the work that your organization has done. Uh, if you could just share a bit about the fact that public housing exists is an ongoing struggle. I mean, in Queens, uh, you talked about the uh, largest public housing unit in the country being there. Um, so can you just maybe locate a bit the organizational work that you do and why this was related directly to the opposition of community organizations in Queens to Amazon's H2Q proposal? Yeah. Yeah, so for a long time, CAV started in response to anti-Asian violence or hate violence, which particularly now um, is, has, is once again rising really rapidly. Uh, but we decided to stop, to stop organizing against those sort of individual acts of violence because it was just putting out fires that never ended and to actually move into thinking about state or institutional violence, right? The deeper causes of violence against our communities. And through that, we began to organize around housing because so many working class Asian immigrants are in neighborhoods that have deep meaning, deep connection where they have lived for generations, where they've raised families, right? Where you don't have to speak English to get around, where, where you live near your neighbors and your family members and those neighborhoods are, are some of the front lines for gentrification in New York City. Uh, in, in Queens, we most of our members are actually in public housing, which is a different, uh, not necessarily places where they have been for generations, but like I was saying before, some of the last bastions of affordable housing in New York City. And so a lot of people would say like, why do you care if Amazon moves here or not? Your housing is stable. But what we know is that all of those privatization schemes I was talking about earlier, right? RAD, the blueprint, the trust, all of these ways to take public housing and move it out of public and into the private market, those get accelerated when, when corporations like Amazon make a neighborhood a hot neighborhood. So after Amazon selected Long Island City as the site of their new headquarters, they never actually moved here, right? People didn't, there, there weren't actually people who moved here, but the prices in the neighborhood changed. The price of rents went up, the price of land went up, right? There are businesses that got priced out, people who got priced out. And that's because when Amazon decided to move here, that's how speculation works, right? Suddenly Long Island City became even more of a hot investment of a good investment of a good bet that if we invest in land here, if we invest in housing here, if we drive up the rents, pretty soon people will come and be more than willing to pay those prices. And so both that increases the pressure on a place, the Queensbridge houses, is, it's in a beautiful location. It's right by the park. It's right by the water. It is a great place for private developers to come and take, right? It's great, obviously, no, we don't think it's great, but like developers think it's a great spot. And so one, we knew that having like one of the largest corporations in the world have their headquarters right next to this beautiful plot of land that is currently full of black and brown working class people, we knew that would increase the pressure on those buildings to then, like for that to be the target, for the Queensbridge houses to be the next target for these NYCHA public housing privatization schemes. Two, our members rely on affordable, working class led, small businesses, services, Right, you have to be able to go get a, get a cup of chai nearby, to do your laundry nearby, to get groceries nearby, to pick up food nearby, right? And all of that, those are the businesses that get priced out and get replaced by 
fancy restaurants that our members can't afford, but that if you work at Amazon, you can totally spend $40 on lunch, right? And so the other thing folks are really concerned about was actually what would happen to all of the infrastructure, like all of the kind of connective tissue that makes a neighborhood, that even if the housing stayed, they would lose all of that. And, and then that's a different way of being priced out. And lastly, you know, we've done a lot of thinking and, and reading and researching and studying around how gentrification happens. And this is one of the primary ways, right? The making a place really uh, appealing to luxury development, having luxury development come in and then pushing out everybody who used to be in that neighborhood. Like folks knew that that's what was coming next and they didn't wanna see that happen to their neighborhood. Yeah, and and to thanks so much for sharing all that. I am like just thinking about also the specificities of uh, H2Q. I guess basically it would have brought in a lot of workers who had higher salaries because it was not simply a warehouse, but they're sort of like echelons of Amazon employment. Yeah, absolutely. So the other piece, Amazon had a lot of PR talking points around like, oh, but we're bringing jobs. Here's the number of jobs we're bringing. And when we dug a little bit deeper, and this has been some time, so I forget the exact number, but I think it was under 100 jobs that were actually jobs that a lot of the folks that we work with could do, right? Who don't necessarily have higher degrees, who don't always speak English, right? And so a lot of the jobs that were coming in were not actually jobs that would have hired our working class membership. And the other piece is that like, yes, people want good jobs, but we deserve good jobs without displacement, right? We want good jobs where we don't then have to commute from two hours away because that's the only place we can afford to live. So yeah, we got the job, but now we have to, now we have to, now we have a two hour commute one way, right? And so yes, we want good jobs, but we want those jobs without displacement. And we want those jobs to actually be for working class people to be dignified and well-paid and good jobs. And, you know, Amazon doesn't have a history of doing that anyway. So it's not mm -hmm. like we were really excited about Amazon jobs when, you know, Amazon workers who were unionizing at the time, they're saying like, actually our jobs are awful and these are not the kind of jobs we want. So even if it had been a warehouse, those aren't, those aren't good jobs. Those aren't jobs with dignity. Those aren't jobs with any kind of support. Like those aren't the jobs we want anyway. Yeah, and like thinking about like the Amazon presence in Queens, just in regards to like the way that um, it would affect different communities, but also the fact that politicians initially had welcomed the idea of Amazon, in, uh, in, yeah, including the former mayor, uh, from what I understand, um, who is sort of left center Democrat type, um, de Blasio. But but just just thinking about like the ways that um, a corporate presence like that simply was being imposed, right? Like the the idea of like um, autonomy and like local decision making and politics. I think people would have the impression that in American cities there's a lot of sort of possibility for reach and voice at a local level. But obviously that wasn't initially the case in terms of Amazon, like a lot of community groups like yours had to actually say something, whether it was about the effects on housing, whether it was about the potential working conditions or the fact that a lot of the jobs that were being offered or of the very few jobs that were being offered actually weren't accessible for people in Queens. 
Um, so yeah, could if, if you could locate a bit of those issues, that'd be super appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the tensions between elected officials and community members, right? So we had elected officials saying, on behalf of the community here, as the local representatives, we welcome you. And then we had community members saying like, wait a minute, we never agreed to that. We actually really actively don't want this here. And so that was a huge point of tension that there were especially real estate aligned electeds who may or may not be Democrat. Um, but, you know, as in, which is to say that there are real estate aligned electeds across all levels of the political spectrum. So the folks who are generally aligned with real estate who see real estate as a way to bring money into New York as a way for the city to create income, who give subsidies to developers, right? Those folks were saying, yes, we want this. This is within our theory of how New York should work and how New York can make money. And what community members know is that that real estate is never for us, right? And that real estate is never for the benefit of working class people. Those, those kinds of developments always end up pushing people out. And so what community said is actually like real estate is not the way we want New York City to make money. Real estate is actually very clearly our enemy in this city. Real estate is actually who's creating gentrification and displacement pressures, right? It's, it's luxury developers, it's real estate lobbyists. These are the folks that are actually trying to take New York City and make it a place where you can speculate and build and try to invest your money and try to make more money as opposed to having New York actually be for working class New Yorkers. And so that was always really clear to local communities that this has actually never been good for us and we certainly don't want it in our backyard. So just maybe to finish, given all the analysis you shared and thank you, um, can you talk a bit about your organization and the idea of community power? Um, community groups stood up and opposed the H2Q project of Amazon in Queens and that successfully was um, stopped. Uh, obviously, Amazon's presence in greater New York City area is not stopped. Um, so just to, I know that there's a lot of important organizing going on within Amazon warehouses, for example, workers who are trying to unionize, but this project was stopped, right? And, and I'd love to hear a bit about your reflections on community power. I realize a lot of groups were sort of in a broad coalition to oppose the H2Q project, but sustaining that network of community organizations to be able to come together on different issues, whether it's defending public housing, whether it's opposing like a corporate monolithic presence like Amazon wanting to be in Queens, whether it's um, opposing police violence, sustaining these processes at a community-based level is obviously not simple. So can you talk a bit about like your organization, just how you work and the importance of community power from your point of view uh, as an organizer. Yeah, totally. The, yeah, the basis of our organization is, is base building and grassroots organizing, and that's how we understand community power. So we have knocked on, you know, we're also an Asian organization. So we have knocked on the door of every Asian tenant at least that we know of in the Queensbridge houses and three to four complexes nearby, like at least three or four times, right? We have invited every Asian tenant into membership. We've held one-on-ones with every Asian tenant who wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one with us. Um, 
And we have we have weekly uh, weekly or biweekly member leadership meetings where member leaders actually make decisions about campaigns, about the future of the organization, about the base, and we do outreach all the time. Um, obviously, there have been moments in the pandemic where that has paused, but other than that, we have done weekly or biweekly outreach all the time. And so, the basis of our power is in having organized community within our neighborhood, and. I think something else important, and this is this is the way that we work. It's not the way that all organizations do or should work, but we like anybody who is an Asian tenant and wants to build power with us is welcome. We're clear about our politics. We're clear about our relationship with real estate and developers. We're clear about being about building an Asian immigrant left. But anybody who sees can see themselves within that is welcome to come. And then we struggle. You know, if we disagree about a campaign, if we disagree politically, we struggle together. And part of the work is actually bringing more and more people in, right? Always saying like, yes, come through. Yes, come talk. Yes, let's have this space together. And then building power through that. And so, you know, we brought that power to bear in different ways, sometimes through direct action, sometimes through we, we had a, a massive petition drive that was both CAV, but also a number of other organizations who do organize the Black, Latino, white, other folks in public housing. Um, and had this huge petition drive and got, I, I don't remember the numbers now, but we got hundreds of petitions in one day, um, hundreds if not thousands of petitions of people in the Queensbridge houses saying, we don't want Amazon to come here. Um, and so that, you know, and that was part of the basis of our power, being able to demonstrate that so many, so many community members, probably the majority of people in our communities actually didn't want this giant headquarters in their backyard. Respect. It's great to get a bit of a picture of, you know, one organization that was part of a broader coalition to oppose H2Q in Queens, because there's a lot of headlines about it. And that's important that people got the news, but also just to get a sense of the broad um, network of community organizing that didn't obviously just come about in response to Amazon, but has been organizing for years. So having this background and context is super helpful. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Sasha. Yeah. Can I say one last thing? Please, yeah. I think one last thing that maybe is helpful is that it, it helped that we, I think we cast as broad a net as we could, right? So there were, of course, workers, like workers, Amazon workers already, Whole Foods workers, right? Workers under these sort of Amazon subsidiaries, who knew about the, what the work, working conditions were within Amazon, future workers, tenant organizations like ours, um, like immigrant rights organizations because Amazon Web Services collaborates with ICE. Right, so we cast as broad a net as we could and said, basically like anybody who's got some beef with Amazon, come join us. And I think that really helped that it wasn't, it wasn't just a worker fight. It wasn't just a tenant fight. It wasn't just an immigrant fight. It was actually like, here's this giant corporation that not just represents, but is actively funding and fueling many different kinds of exploitation, right? Worker exploitation, gentrification, uh, xenophobia, right? All these different things. So anybody who wants to fight, fight them and fight the things they represent, come do it together here. And I think that made a huge difference instead of having all of these different folks taking all of these different angles in separate fights. Coalition building. Yes. Respect, respect. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, it was okay. really nice to meet you. Likewise. Yeah.
that was an exchange with community organizer Sasha Wajirathna of CAV Organizing Asian Communities. Uh, this is a network of community organizers, both in Queens and in other districts, that have been uh, working on campaigns to support tenant rights. Um, Sasha speaks about, you know, as we've heard, uh, the important role that um, community groups opposed to rising rent prices and the violence of displacement and gentrification in the urban context of Queens and other boroughs of Manhattan, of course, this is a reality. But in Queens, the Amazon H2Q uh, project that was being pushed and was defeated uh, was a prime example of gentrification. So I wanted to highlight uh, this community voice, uh, community activist, um, who could sort of break down the ways that uh, critique of gentrification was part of the ca successful campaign to shut down the H2Q proposal from Amazon in Queens. This is part of a series that I worked on uh, in collaboration with you know, many activists uh, because Amazon has been opening more and more warehouses within Montreal and other cities, uh, smaller cities. And I thought it would be important to highlight voices uh, who've been involved in organizing for workplace justice and also community justice and economic equality within the context of Amazon uh, in terms of their workplace conditions that, you know, clearly are not just if we think about the work floors of Amazon warehouses or the realities of Amazon drivers having to pee in bottles. It was reported uh, Amazon drivers living uh, in temporary uh, mobile housing, uh, many things that have been reported. So this is a collection to try to highlight different voices. Um, you know, I sit on the board of the Immigrant Workers Centre in Montreal that has been making efforts and inroads into organizing workers in Amazon context here in Quebec and Montreal. So I thought that these voices, uh, many of whom led a successful struggle against the Amazon H2Q project in Queens, could serve as a good reference point. So thank you so much to Sasha for being on the program today. Also, I just want to say thanks to the McGill University Corporate Accountability Project that supported this series on uh, organizing for workplace justice and community justice uh, and equality in relation to the violence of Amazon Corporation. I'm Stefan Christoph, and this is Free City Radio. This is the 96th edition. Uh, to finish the broadcast today, I'm going to go to a piece of music that I worked on with cellist Lori Goldston from Seattle. She's originally from New York City area. Uh, this is an album that's coming out through a small label in Thessaloniki in Greece called Dasa Tapes. Lori's a really awesome progressive musician. She played with Nirvana, with Earth, uh, and has a a very striking and excellent solo practice on the cello. I'm honored to have played with her. So I thought to share with you uh, listeners uh, one of our duets. And um, the album's called Punk Equinox. Thanks to Sasha again for being on the show. We share two new episodes of Free City Radio a week, one on Fridays and one on Mondays. And so we broadcast also every week um, at 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, Campus Community Radio. And you can find us, of course, through podcast networks, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>